welcome back to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, joined by my co-host, Winston the Cat. Every other week, Winston and I will bring you a news story about a murder, disappearance, or serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. Just a reminder, this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Today, I'm going to tell you two stories of unsolved cases, one about the mysterious murder of an entire family in Oregon, and the second about the mysterious disappearance of a mother of two in Washington. Both cases remain unsolved, despite some very suspicious characters linked to both mysteries. Because both cases are technically unsolved, the amount of information publicly available to tell the stories is limited. As we know, police tend to keep a lot of information under wraps when a case is open. Most of the time, they don't like to share the names of persons of interest or suspects either. They don't want to show their hands before they've collected all the necessary evidence. It can be frustrating for us true crime enthusiasts, but it's essential to the future prosecution of the case. In 1974, an average all-American family, the Cowdens, decided to go camping over Labor Day weekend. This wasn't the family's original holiday weekend plans. The father, Richard Cowden, was supposed to haul gravel for his boss, but his boss's truck ended up breaking down so they couldn't do the job. So Richard and his wife Belinda packed up their two kids, five-year-old David and five-month-old Melissa, along with their basset hound Droopy, and headed for Carberry Creek, just a short distance from the California border. There's a lot of unknown information about the family's weekend, but it seems like it was pretty normal and uneventful. That is, until Sunday, September 1st. Around 9 a.m., Richard took David to the Copper General Store to buy milk for baby Melissa. The store was about a mile from the family's campsite. This is the last confirmed sighting of the Cowden family alive. Sunday evening, Richard and Belinda had made plans to stop by Melinda's mother's house on their way back home to White City. Belinda's mother lived in Copper, about a mile from the campsite. Sunday evening rolled around, and the family never arrived for dinner. Belinda's mother drove to the campsite, thinking that maybe they were just running late. When she arrived, the campsite was incredibly eerie. There was no sign of the family, but their truck was still parked at the campsite, and the keys were left on a picnic table. Belinda's mother saw that Belinda's purse and Melissa's diaper bag were left on the table, along with a half-empty carton of milk. Most disturbing to Belinda's mother was an open package of cigarettes. You see, Belinda was a chain smoker, and she never went anywhere without those cigarettes. Belinda's mother notified authorities, and they searched the campsite area until it got dark. Richard's wallet and watch were found next to the creek. His wallet still had $23 inside. The family's truck hadn't been broken into, and all of their clothing remained, except their bathing suits. The next day, September 2nd, Droopy, the family's basset hound, was found scratching at the front door of the Copper General store. Unfortunately, Droopy couldn't provide any answers as to the family's whereabouts. The search for the Cowden family was one of the largest searches in Oregon history. Not only were state and local police a part of the search effort, 
so were Explorer Scouts, the Oregon National Guard, and hundreds of other volunteers. Teams searched 25 miles of roads and trails that surrounded the campsite. There were no signs of a struggle at the campsite or the creek, and there were no footprints or tire tracks found either. It seemed as if the family had just walked away. Searchers looked for the family in abandoned mine shafts on both sides of the creek for several miles, but nothing turned up. The official search was called off on September 7th, but family and friends continued to search on their own after that. Drowning was ruled out fairly quickly as a possible explanation because the family's bodies would have surfaced downstream and they would have been found right away, but there were no bodies found in the creek. According to family and friends, Richard and Belinda had a happy marriage. They were very close to both of their extended families. Richard's older brother had died of cancer, and they were waiting to hear whether his younger brother had cancer. In fact, it was over that Labor Day weekend that his brother found out he didn't have cancer. Richard was a logging truck driver, and he made enough money to support his family, and they had very little debt. So the Cowden family had no reason to disappear on their own. Investigators also ruled out robbery as a motive, seeing as how Belinda's purse and its contents were left behind along with Richard's wallet and watch. Without any clues or leads to go on, the family's disappearance would go cold. Then, in April of 1975, two men were hiking and gold prospecting when they discovered the decomposing body of an adult male tied to a tree on a steep hillside. The authorities were notified, and a search of the area, including a nearby cave, revealed the bodies of an adult female, a child, and an infant. The entrance of the cave had been sealed off with rocks to disguise it and hide the bodies. The bodies were identified through dental records and were, in fact, the bodies of Richard, Belinda, little David, and baby Melissa. Belinda and David died from 22 caliber gunshot wounds, while baby Melissa died from severe head trauma. I read conflicting reports on Richard's cause of death. One source stated that the coroner was unable to determine his cause of death, while another said he also died of a gunshot wound. No gun or any other weapon was found near the cave or where Richard's body was found. Investigators believe that on September 2nd, the Cowden family went swimming in Carberry Creek shortly after David and Richard returned from the store. Then, sometime around noon or so, the family was abducted at gunpoint by one or more strangers. Based on the location where the bodies were found, investigators felt that the perpetrator or perpetrators were local, someone that would be familiar with the area. Interestingly, investigators also felt the family's bodies had been in the cave since September 2nd, 1974, despite a search volunteer adamantly denying the bodies were there when he searched the cave eight months prior. So police had found the bodies, but not the murder weapon. Finding the bodies answered a few questions, but it also created so many more. There was no concrete motive and nothing to explain why the family of four who were just camping for the holiday weekend would have been murdered. Stranger-on-stranger crimes are actually fairly rare, but they're also some of the most difficult cases to solve because of the lack of connection between the victims and the perpetrator. Investigators spoke to some witnesses, including a family who was visiting from California at the time the Cowden family disappeared. 
they had arrived at the campsite around 5 p.m. on September 1st. They reported seeing two men and a woman pull up in a pickup truck, and they told investigators the three people were acting really strange. The witnesses said it felt like the people were waiting for them to leave, which made them really nervous and uncomfortable, so they ended up moving to a completely different campsite. Police also looked at known sex offenders and psychiatric patients released from the state hospital around the time the family went missing. There has only been one suspect in this case, but he was never charged with the murders. His name is Dwayne Lee Little. Little was not a good guy. In 1964, he raped and murdered 15-year-old Orla Phipps. On November 2nd, Orla went out to ride her horse. Later that day, the horse came home, but Orla didn't. Even at just 15, Orla fought for her life. Little stabbed her several times, struck her on the head with a blunt object, and slashed her throat. Little then raped Orla after she was dead. When he was arrested and charged for Orla's murder, there was a heated debate over whether to try him as a juvenile or as an adult. Little underwent a psychiatric evaluation to help prosecutors make their decision. Little had received a significant blow to the head at age 7, which left a visible depression in his skull. His parents were extremely paranoid and had their own criminal and mental health issues. Despite being in frail health, Little's mother was charged with arson after burning her friend's house down. She spent some time in jail, but the charges were later dropped. I'm not really clear why, but it's possible her deteriorating health played some role. Little's father was committed to the state hospital in Washington in 1961 after he shot and killed his own brother. Little's father was diagnosed as criminally insane with paranoid reaction and paranoid state. He escaped from the hospital and fled to Tennessee. Then the Little family moved to Oregon in 1964. Little was ultimately prosecuted as an adult for Orla's murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison. However, because prison goals were different in the 1960s and 70s, Little was recommended for work release and was eventually released in May 1974 after serving just 10 years for Orla's murder. It was this parole release that allowed Little to potentially cross paths with the Cowden family in 1974. Little's parents lived near Copper, and Little was allegedly in Copper over the Labor Day weekend. Little's girlfriend claimed she saw him with a 22 caliber gun around Christmas of 1974, just two months after the Cowden family went missing. After she found out Little was cheating on her, she turned him into the police and his parole was revoked for the unlawful possession of a firearm. Little was in prison from May 1974 to April 1977. In June 1980, Little picked up a pregnant 23-year-old woman named Margie Hunter after her car broke down in Portland. Little sexually assaulted Margie and beat her, but fortunately, she survived. Little was charged and convicted of attempted murder and sentenced to three consecutive life terms. It was around this time that he appeared on police's radar after his prison cellmate told them Little confessed to the Cowden family murders. Little and his parents matched the descriptions provided by the California couple, but Little denied any involvement in the murders. He claimed he was away on business on the Southern Oregon coast over Labor Day weekend in 1974. 
Little claims he met up with his parents on Sunday morning for a trip into the mountains. Little refused to take a lie detector test, and despite a search of Little's truck, there was no physical evidence linking Little or his parents to the murders of the Cowden family. Police believe there is a lot of circumstantial evidence linking Little to the murders, but there's nothing left to use for DNA comparison, so there's no direct evidence that links Little to the murders. Given that Little is currently serving three life sentences already, there isn't really anything police can use as a bargaining tool to get him to confess. And without a confession, the Cowden family murders will likely remain unsolved. Hey guys, are you thinking about starting your own podcast? If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me give you the details. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. The next story I'll be covering is the mysterious disappearance of Nancy Moyer. This was one of the first cases I knew I wanted to cover when I started this podcast. But when I started to really dive into this case, my head started spinning. There are so many twists and turns. It's hard to know what rabbit holes are worth going down. Let's start at the beginning. Nancy Moyer grew up in Olympia, Washington, which is the capital of the state. She went to college at Central Washington University and majored in accounting. She met a man named Bill while she was temping at his office in the accounting department. The two eventually got married after Nancy graduated, and she landed a job as a financial analyst for the Washington State Department of Ecology. Nancy and Bill had two daughters, and by all accounts, Nancy loved being a mother. But by 2007, Nancy and Bill's marriage had fizzled, and the two decided to separate. According to Bill, the separation was amicable, and the two remained on good terms in order to co-parent their girls. Jumping ahead to 2009, Nancy was living in Tenino, Washington, just outside of Olympia and only 75 miles from the city of Seattle. After her separation from Bill, Nancy got several tattoos and began engaging in a more active social life. This seems, at least in part, to have stemmed from the fact that she rotated visitations with Bill every other weekend, so she had more time for herself and more time to go out. The weekend of March 6, 2009, was Bill's weekend with the girls. He would return them to Nancy on Sunday the 8th. Nancy would have the weekend to herself, but she didn't tell Bill what her plans were. After all, they were separated, and she probably didn't consider it to be his business. Neither Bill nor Nancy could have anticipated that March 6 would be the last time they'd see each other. Sunday rolled around and Bill drove to Nancy's house to drop off the girls. Nancy's car was parked in the driveway, but the front door was ajar, which was odd to Bill. Her cell phone and purse were still in the house and so were her keys. Bill knew Nancy was a frequent walker, but it didn't make sense that she would leave her keys inside the house and leave the front door open. Bill made some calls around to people who knew Nancy, but no one had heard from her since Friday the 6th. 
Bill took the girls back to his house and kept trying to get in touch with Nancy. When she didn't show up for work on Monday the 9th, Bill reported her missing. The Thurston County Sheriff's Department was called in to help the local police department with the investigation. When detectives arrived at Nancy's house, her car was still parked in the driveway. When investigators went into the house, they first noticed two glasses of wine on the counter, as well as Nancy's purse and keys. Her driver's license, credit cards, and checkbook were all left in the house. There were no signs of forced entry or a struggle. The only thing missing from Nancy's house was a long brown coat with fur-type lining along the bottom. I should note there are conflicting reports as to whether Nancy actually had a cell phone at this time. Bill said she had a cell phone in the Disappeared episode I watched, but there are also reports that Nancy actually got rid of that phone and she had a prepaid phone instead, which obviously can't be traced. Investigators started with the timeline of events. They knew what time Bill picked up the girls on Friday, and using bank records, they were able to figure out that Nancy went to the grocery store around 6.45 p.m. A Tenino police officer who was running radar in the area around Nancy's house saw her unloading groceries from her car between 9 and 9.30. He told Thurston County sheriffs that she was alone. This was the last sighting of Nancy. Because Nancy's door was left ajar, detectives obtained her utility usage information to narrow down the time frame for when Nancy likely disappeared. There was a spike in the heating between 9 p.m. Friday night and 12 a.m. Saturday morning, which is when police believed Nancy went missing. But the question still remained, where was Nancy? While the husband or ex-husband is always a suspect, Bill was ruled out fairly quickly since he was with his girls on the 6th and he agreed to take a polygraph, which he passed. So in order to figure out what happened to Nancy and where she might be, investigators began looking closer at the intimate details of her post-marital life. According to the Disappeared episode, there was a private side of Nancy that not many people knew about. Nancy's lifestyle changed after her separation. She started bar hopping and meeting people, eventually engaging in hookups and discreet relationships with these unknown individuals. No one knew who any of these men were or who she was spending her time with, so investigators had no idea who they should interview. To be clear, I am not at all blaming the victim. Nancy has the right to live the life she wants to live. The main reason I'm highlighting this is to remind all of us that you can never be too careful. If you're a single, separated, divorced woman, and you're going out and meeting people you don't know, at least tell a trusted friend where you're going. No one will think this is weird and it could save your life. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox and get back to the story. As the investigation continued, police discovered Nancy had dated a few men from her office. Once they knew about the intricacies of her dating life, investigators were able to track down the men they wanted to interview. They started with one of Nancy's co-workers, a man named Matt. He claims the two were just friends. Matt also claims Nancy told him she would be relaxing at home for the weekend. He provided an alibi, telling investigators he was with his wife and son, so eventually he was ruled out as a suspect. The next potential suspect police looked at was a man named William, who had a brief relationship with Nancy. He may have been a co-worker of Nancy's too, 
but the reports weren't that clear. He was interviewed by police, and they found out he was a sex offender. It's not clear from the information I used for this episode if Nancy knew this information or not. But I assume she didn't because she probably would not have wanted a man like that around her children. William told police he ended their relationship, and evidently he provided a reliable alibi because he was also cleared by police. The next two men I'm going to discuss have never been officially named as suspects or persons of interest in Nancy's disappearance, nor have they been arrested or charged in connection with her disappearance. Like I mentioned earlier, Nancy dated a few of her co-workers. One of these co-workers was a man named Jim Roth. He told investigators he had a brief fling with Nancy and went on a few dates with her, but he gave conflicting reports about the sexual aspect of their relationship. First, he told police he was unable to perform, but later he changed his story and said the two had sex at his house. Roth told police he had his sons on Friday the 6th, which was supposedly confirmed by his sons, but they were never actually interviewed by police. Roth said he went to Nancy's house on Saturday night. Investigators felt like the only reason he told them this was to explain away his fingerprints or DNA if they were found in Nancy's house. Interestingly, only Nancy's prints were found at her house. There was no foreign DNA and no foreign fingerprints. Roth agreed to take a polygraph test, but the results were inconclusive. About a year later, in August 2010, Bernard Howell was pulled over by a Thurston County Sheriff's deputy. Howell was a door-to-door meat salesman with a history of mental health issues. When the deputy looked inside Howell's car, he saw the body of a woman, later identified as Rhonda Boone, wrapped up in a sleeping bag in the passenger seat of the car. Howell was arrested and charged with Rhonda's murder. Rhonda had her throat slit, she suffered blunt force trauma to the head, and she was either strangled or smothered. Howell later admitted to having sex with Rhonda's corpse. He was sentenced to almost 27 years in prison. Prior to Rhonda's murder, Howell had no criminal record. So what does Bernard Howell have to do with Nancy's disappearance? That remains somewhat unknown. Authorities interviewed Howell in 2011 after Nancy's daughters identified him as the man who sold meat to their mom. Howell denied ever meeting Nancy, and he was adamant that he had no connection to her disappearance. No evidence was found linking Howell to Nancy's case but there's just something weird about his connection to the case. Is it really just a coincidence that he sold meat to Nancy in the days prior to her going missing? A new detective, Detective Elkin, took over the case in January of 2012. Detective Elkin re-interviewed Jim Roth in 2013, and Roth did himself zero favors by making more inconsistent statements about the sexual aspects of his relationship with Nancy. He claimed he had sex with Nancy, but he didn't recall her having any tattoos. Roth then said he went to Nancy's house on Friday night, not Saturday night, which also contradicts his earlier statements. Police narrowed down the time frame of Nancy's disappearance to between 9 and 12, so if he's there Saturday night, he's probably lying, or he's just chilling in Nancy's house by himself. But if he's there on Friday night, that's even worse for him, because that's the night Nancy actually went missing. 
Unfortunately, police couldn't hold Roth based on these inconsistent statements, and they had to let him go. Nancy's disappearance was reclassified to a no-body homicide in 2013 in order to expand Detective Elkin's available resources for the case. Despite the reclassification, the case remained cold. In 2017, Jim Roth died of natural causes. Whatever information he had about Nancy's disappearance died with him. The most recent and puzzling development came in 2019, 10 years after Nancy went missing. Eric Roberts called 911 on July 9th, claiming he strangled Nancy with a scarf during rough sex. So who the heck is Eric Roberts and why would he make this confession? Roberts was a former co-worker of Nancy's at the Department of Ecology. He recanted his confession the next day on July 10th, but the police were already in the process of conducting a search of his property after his confession directed police to a fire pit that might have contained Nancy's remains. Despite the property search, no remains were ever found. Roberts was never formally charged for Nancy's murder due to the lack of evidence, but police did arrest Roberts for the unlawful possession of dangerous weapons and the unlawful possession of a short firearm following the property search. Roberts was also later arrested on fourth-degree assault and domestic violence charges, but the victim, his son, declined to press charges. Roberts has denied any involvement in Nancy's disappearance, but he remains a person of interest in the case. Roberts gave a a four-and-a-half-hour interview to the podcast Hide and Seek, where he said he confessed to the murder because of the prescription drugs he was on. He claimed he never had sex with Nancy, he never had Nancy over to his house, and he never mentioned anything about a scarf. All of which is contradicted in the recorded statement he made to police. In that statement, he claimed Nancy attacked him and he accidentally killed her. Roberts said he was on drugs and alcohol at the time and didn't realize she was dead. His whole story is bizarre and makes it hard to figure out what is truth and what is fiction. It's hard to know why he'd make up such an elaborate lie, if it really is a lie. A final interesting fact about Roberts is that while he denied having a sexual relationship with Nancy, his nephew, Aaron Huntley, actually dated Nancy before she disappeared. Police said Huntley was visibly upset during his interview with police, and he was crying and clenching his fists. Police appear to have ruled Huntley out as a suspect or person of interest, though it's not entirely clear why. Police say that the investigation is open and ongoing, and that there are suspects in the case who haven't been publicly named or identified by police. There has been no activity on Nancy's credit cards or bank accounts since her disappearance on March 6, 2009. She hasn't been seen since that date. If you have any information on the disappearance of Nancy Moyer, please call the Thurston County Sheriff's Office at 360-786-5500. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com, and you can find us on Twitter at truecrimecatlaw and on Instagram at truecrimecatlawyer. You can also find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. If you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at winstonthecatpdx. Thanks again for listening, and stay tuned for our next episode.